I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner, and joined with me today is our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, author and founder of the Strong Towns organization. Welcome back, Chuck. Hey, thank you. I just got off the plane from Texas, and it's nice to be back <laughs> in Minnesota despite the cold weather. It's it's great, so I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, you are having a long day, so hopefully after this, you'll be able to take a break, enjoy the weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, I, so I'm going to take a nap when we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, today's article was published in the Washington Post by Ian Duncan entitled, In South Bend, Pete Buttigieg challenged a decades-old assumption that streets are for cars above all else. So as many listeners probably know, Mayor Pete was recently appointed as Secretary of Transportation for the Biden administration. He formerly was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and during his time made some pretty big moves to improve mobility infrastructure for people who are walking and biking in the downtown area. His $25 million plan helped revitalize their downtown by making public space more universally usable and safer. Formerly a ghost town, their downtown has cultivated a very healthy business community and culture of people walking and biking since the changes were made. And that has fostered support of local Democrats and Republicans alike. So for decades, the United States has approached local transportation very much the same way we approach highway transportation, which is to move cars as quickly as possible. And now no longer a local politician, Mayor Pete is expected to bring this kind of philosophy to the federal stage with opportunity to decrease national pedestrian fatalities and even rethink some of the highways that have been built through neighborhoods and urban downtowns. So in the transportation advocacy and planning world, there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm. And Chuck, I'd really like to get your thoughts on this appointment, especially from a Strong Towns perspective. How do you see the federal government improving its relationship with cities and towns and improving the public realm of communities? Well, let me just start out by saying that what our cities need right now is a heaping helping of what South Bend did. What South Bend did with their downtown, I mean, you you had one-way couplets through the downtown. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say it was much a ghost town. They had had a lot of deindustrialization. They had lost a lot of population. They had seen the more affluent people in the community encouraged to move out to the edge of town and the outskirts of the city. Some great analysis that Urban 3 has done in South Bend and, and that I've seen uh, picked up in other places, you know, by local advocates and others is just how much new streets, new infrastructure, new city there has been while simultaneous with a massive amount of population loss. They, they were kind of the poster child of growing your city into bankruptcy after World War II. When Mayor Pete took over, I don't necessarily think that this is like 
has to go hand in hand. And I, I know this is not the narrative that he has necessarily put forward, but a lot of what I saw him do, or I, I was, I, I watched him do, and I knew people involved, and I've been there a, a, a couple times uh, during this process. Is he brought in people who were going to think about these things differently? He, in a sense, cleaned house and said, you know, the the idea that we are going to grow our way to prosperity by having traffic go fast through the core of the city is is a backward business model. And so, what we need to do is actually make. South Bend, a place that people want to be in. Uh, he got rid of the one-way couplets. He widened out the sidewalks. He slowed down the streets. He really made uh, South Bend a place that people want to be. And the results are there. I mean, you can go there today and you can see that there's life, there's activity, there's people investing in buildings, there's people investing in commercial properties and residential properties, there's people moving into the core downtown, there's buildings that were vacant that now are full of people and full of life. This is, I think, one of our nation's great urban success stories. It's also, you know, from a strong town's perspective, it, it is the strong town's approach. I mean, Mayor Pete is a strong town's mayor. The things that he did in South Bend we're really in the line of let's do small incremental things to deal with where people are struggling in the community and make it a better place for people to live. And it has paid huge dividends. I think in a, a system where despite, and we should talk about the, the spending packages that I think he's going to see and, and the dichotomy of that. But I think in general, when you're looking at places like South Bend, places like Kansas City, where you are, uh, Brainerd, where I'm at, at a, at a smaller scale, but even, you know, you go out to the cities in California where their DOT is, is broke, is beyond bankrupt. Uh, you go to the Northeast where we talked a few episodes ago about the MTA and their struggles with transportation. The New Jersey, New York transportation shortfalls are legendary. It, it is not a stretch to say that we need to find ways to do much more with much less. And the model that Mayor Pete used in South Bend was exactly that. It was, here's how we can actually spend far less on engineering and on asphalt and on pavement and on stuff to move cars, and then in return, get a far greater level of private investment, level of financial return, far more vitality, and, and a far greater quality of life for people. It's hard to imagine someone else in this job that I would be more excited about. It's weird talking about him because I knew him before he ran for DNC chair. I knew him before he ran for president. The Mayor Pete that I knew was not one that I looked at through the lens of presidential politics and partisan politics. And I know most people have been introduced to him in that way. So I, I don't want to say something here because we are, you know, hyper like non- not just nonpartisan, but like we don't have a stake at Strong Towns in the federal national fights over politics. It's hard for me to imagine someone I would be more excited about in this particular position than the guy who literally did the thing at the local level. Yeah, exactly. And I'm excited to see how federal funding can be, you know, brought down to a more local level to do these really small but mighty types of projects. When when I think of the DOTs, I I really think that in, instead of giving them money to to build more, it's I, I like the idea of giving them money to get rid of all the liabilities that they have built through cities. 
I mean, as at least as a step one, it, it would make a lot of sense to actually have public spaces that are valuable. And my big hope with this appointment is that Mayor Pete will use his experience and perspective gained as a local mayor to address issues associated with working with the federal government. Public space is so incredibly important and we often take it for granted. In many places, we have come to treat our public spaces as really a utility rather than something that drives value, both economic and social value. And the character and design of our public spaces drives all the private investment, which has a huge impact on quality of life. When we treat these places like they are just a mere utility, they get reduced to becoming car sewers with the intention to just move cars around as as quickly as possible, moving cars out of our downtown. And it's funny you mentioned the character of their streets being all one ways in the past. You know, Kansas City is basically built on one ways, at least the downtown. And it would be amazing to just make that investment to change it back to two-way streets. And I think it would make a huge difference. And it's something that is small. And I I wrote about that in Kansas city back in like 2014 and was (laughs) roundly criticized, like ridiculed and laughed at not to make this like personal, like I, okay, whatever. (laughs) But it's so, I mean, Kansas city is like the poster child of how obvious a strategy of just make your one way streets back into two way streets. And it would have a huge impact in a positive direction. Right. Yeah, totally. And I don't know if you know this, but we recently got a new city manager and I'm feeling positive about it. Yeah. Yeah. But I I think if you look at South Bend, I mean, to me, the the important shift here, talking as an engineer, South Bend always justified this one-way couplets and adding more capacity and tearing down buildings to add more lanes because they were measuring ADT. They were measuring traffic flow and using that to like, you know, feed the next transportation project. If you step back and look at South Bend as a system, they were losing population. I mean, dramatically losing population, thousands and thousands of people they lost. And so what they were doing by focusing on traffic flow, as opposed to humans, wealth creation, people's actually, you know, their needs, the the health of their business community, all these other things that make up a city, by focusing only on traffic flow, they were actually building more and more lanes for fewer and fewer people. They were just inducing people to drive around more, which, you know, if you're trying to build wealth and keep wealth in a city, the worst thing you can do is force people to spend lots of money on vehicles and cars and, and lots of time traveling around to get the same stuff done. To me, that's a story of South Bend. It's also the story of Kansas City in many ways, although, you know, without with the population shift more than overall population loss, but the same net effect for the downtown. Well, yeah, when you have a public space like that, it's not a place you want to front your home on or have your children play in or your business engaging. It's unfortunate because I I think Kunstler said it best when he said that they it's places that are not worth caring about. And somehow we need to start treating public spaces like they are worth caring about. And they they are the places that we all own own in common. And I'm curious, Chuck, if you see this cultural treatment of public space as something that can and should be altered at the federal level, or does it require more of a local push? I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on how 
kind of a, a federal level position can influence how cities are designing their public spaces. Well, this is where I think this gets problematic. And I'm glad we led off with optimism because I, I, I am a big fan of the mayor. Now, you know, the transportation secretary, I, I like him. I like his vision. But, you know, you're dealing with a system that only works in large increments. I mean, you're dealing with a system that deals with cataclysmic money. And the idea, you know, from the Biden administration now is that we're going to pump a whole bunch more money into infrastructure, into transportation. There seems to be, there always seems to be a bipartisan consensus that this should happen. There seems to be a real push now. For those of you that listen to the Strong Towns podcast, the bumper music at the end has what was a vice president at the time, now the president, saying the words build, 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 like that's the story of America. And I, I was in the room with him when he said that. I, I recorded that. And you know he was talking about transportation and how we make America great. Uh, this was before Trump made that phrase what it is. Biden was talking about you know, here's here's the story of how we've made America into a great country. We go out and build. We build, 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 build. That's our story. And I feel like, you know, not only is that the not the story, it's actually an oversimplification of what needs to happen. Right now, South Bend benefits mostly. The, the best projects that South Bend does are very small and very localized. They're very nuanced. They're very thoughtful. They focus on the needs of people. We could go there today and we could walk around South Bend and we could talk to their staff and their team, which is fantastic. Uh, They've done amazing things. They're very savvy people. But they would tell you that like the greatest projects they've done were not the $20 million this or the $30 million that. It, it was these small, like nuanced things that they did to squeeze a little bit more value out of this and that and to, to make things a little bit better for people over here and over there. It's really hard. I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm not saying there's no way we can do it, but it's very hard to do this when you're allocating money out of Washington, D.C., especially when the mayors and the city councils and and particularly the DOTs that are set up to receive this are still kind of old school thinkers. I'm going to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld. He he made this quote and was roundly criticized for it back during the the Gulf War. Um, He said, you go to war with the military you have, not the one you wish you had. He was getting pushback on troops dying in armored vehicles by IEDs. And he's like, I would love to send them out with armored vehicles, but you know, we don't have armored vehicles and you still have to fight the war. You still have to go. It is a valid insight. We are going to do a transportation bill and have a transportation secretary that I really like. And we are going to do it with the DOTs we have in the 50 states, not the DOTs I wish we had. And so I, I think the challenge that we have or the question that we have is, how do we allocate money in a system that is designed to build terrible projects? I don't know as I have the answer for that. Like I'm not pretending I'm, you know, there's some like easy one, two, three step and I'm gonna prognosticate on, you know, here's the simple things that should be done. This is really tough stuff because the reason South Bend did well is because they had a great mayor who stood up and said, this is how things have to be and I will not accept this any other way. And he assembled a team that actually helped him be really savvy and really smart about making that case to the people, to the other officials, to other people. Um, 
you know, I, I, our local leaders, if they want to see similar things done, are going to have to advocate for themselves to their DOTs in similar ways because I, I don't see the DOTs at the state level as places of great innovation. And I certainly don't think pouring, you know, a trillion dollars, a trillion and a half, two trillion dollars into the system is going to spark a lot of innovation in and of itself. We're just going to get a lot of bad projects. Well, it also makes me think of what this means for federal guidelines. I know that we've talked about this in the past. One thing that is really frustrating to me is that the federal government seems to have a lot of control and how local public streets are designed by local engineers. I'll just bring up this personal experience I have in trying to get interventions approved for traffic calming in my own neighborhood. And it, it has become clear that recommendations of the federal highway manual or whatever it is supersede local resident consensus, it supersedes the local engineer's personal opinion. And even if the federal highway manual couldn't be any more removed from an urban neighborhood context in Kansas City. So there's really not a lot of opportunities for residents at the local level to implement some kind of tactical small approach or even a conventional traffic intervention that doesn't align with this federal level guidance. And it turns out that the allowed approaches seem to be the most expensive and the least realistic approach, especially because local funding is is tight and it's very limited, especially for small public works projects. It seems like there's this mismatch between who ultimately has design control, which is the federal government, I guess, and who provides funding at the neighborhood level, which are these municipalities that don't have any money. So I'm wondering, as an engineer who has worked in this world, is this something that you have also perceived? And am I missing something? It seems like engineers who work for cities that they are smart, they went through a lot of school and training and should be able to make decisions about how public space is designed, but there are some limits that are coming from the federal government, which seems really weird to me. So there's going to be a bunch of really good engineers and advocates who are going to hear what you just said, and they're going to say, no, that's wrong. Let me say how I think you're right in practice, but give you also like some nuance on it and some hope. Because the federal guidelines do default the way you describe them. And I think even more important than that, the bureaucracies around them, including the people who administer them, the engineers on the ground, the uh, the contractors, the, the unions, the people who build this stuff and advocate for it, the professional organizations, all of this stuff is defaulted to the very way you describe it. So how in the world is someone like you know, the mayor of little old South Bend able to do something so radically different? And, and the answer is because there is flexibility in those federal guidelines. Like there is, there are other ways to do it. The, the frustrating thing is that the default is the opposite, right? The engineer, and I'm, I'm going to make a moral judgment here, the bad engineer who stands up and says, I'm all about moving cars. I'm all about ADT. I'm all about level of service. I'm all about, you know, 85th percentile speed and engineering metrics. They have a very clear, easy path to designing really terrible stuff. 
I, they do. They have a very easy path because nothing in the system resists that. Everything says, yes, go forth. We're going to, we'll affirm you with charts and graphs and data and, and past examples. And, and we're going to tell you you're right. And we're going to surround you with funding. The person who wants to break out of that and say, like, I want to do something different. The road is more rugged. It's a difference between having a nice paved path and then going off road. Like you're going to have to cut through some shrubs and some hedges. You're going to have to cross some swamps. You're going to have to fight alligators and, and bears to get to where you want to go to continue this bad analogy further. You know, like you're, you're going off road, like you're going to cross some rugged terrain. You can get there. The federal standards like will not prohibit you from actually getting there, but everything is kind of harder. It's more difficult. It's not the default setting. And so to me, like what we need more than anything at the local level is leaders who are going to keep blazing this path. Like Mayor Pete to me is a hero because he blazed this path and he's made it slightly easier for like the next person who comes along to do it. If we wanted to actually change things, we would make the path to doing that easier from the federal level. Like we would make that the default. I think there's a dichotomy and I, I question, I'm in this strange world where I want to cheer for that to happen, but yet I also recognize, you know, how difficult that is to do and also how easy it is to screw it up. I've talked a lot about in other places about complete streets and how you know, my experience with complete streets in the mid 1990s as an engineer was that engineers hated it. It was a joke. Like we, this is really stupid. What are we doing? And they resisted it completely. And then uh, they recognized that because of federal incentives and state incentives, and because of the nuance of these projects, that first of all, they didn't have to compromise anything at all about how they built streets. You know, they could still meet their ADT requirements and they could still meet their level of service and they could still meet their 85th percentile speed and they didn't have to compromise on traffic at all. And they could get paid more to add on pedestrian amenities, as they would call them, to streets. And so complete streets became this thing that engineers essentially co-opted to just make projects more expensive and, you know, like be able to market them a little bit better. I'm not a fan of complete streets. I'm a fan of the concept and the idea and the motivation and like the, the inspiration for it. The problem it's trying to solve that, that our streets are despotic for people, not in vehicles is a very real problem, but I'm cynical on the overall approach because of how these top-down systems have, have had it manifest. I'm a little bit skeptical of the capacity of the mayor as decent a person as he is to actually change the system in any meaningful way, especially with more money. Yeah, well, I think that that just points to the fact that it takes more than one person. It takes local leaders who get it. It takes designers who get it. It takes planners who get it, engineers who get it, residents who get it. It takes a lot of people at the local level to to push for a cultural shift in how we actually design our public spaces. It's not going to just be one person, no matter how great that person is. It takes a lot of people at the local level to help to support that kind of change. Right. Well, and hopefully, you know, your new city administrator, the good people here who are, you know, in Brainerd, we're working on a new 
uh, renovation of the highway through the middle of the city. Hopefully, you know, local people advocating for something different will find a champion at the federal level that will make, you know, help them from that end make things a little bit easier. And I feel like that's what we can hope for here, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I am feeling very positive about the future of Kansas City because of having such strong new city management. And we'll see how it goes. (laughs) But I'm hoping that we see some positive change. I love your optimism. You're always the... uh... You're always the optimist, uh, Abby, and I'm I'm the pessimist. So we're a good balance for each other. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm pretty early in my life. I can't, I can't <laughs> cynical all the time. So now you think bring out the age thing. So yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, sorry. Well, <laughs> you say you say I'm old and old and cynical. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, a curmudgeon. Is that the word? Uh-huh, curmudgeon. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll wear that. It was funny because I was listening to a, some people talk about Bitcoin today, and I'm like, I just can't. <laughs> like, I am. I'm. I I realize. Like, I've crossed over. Like, I think when I was in my mid twenties, I probably said this is really cool, and now that I'm in my mid forties, I'm not old, but I'm not. I'm too old for that stuff. You know, I'm like that. Hey, it. That sounds. At crazy. least you're not talking about GameStop. Oh, I've, I've, yeah, no, I'm, I'm in and out of that. That's great. Yeah, I'm sure you're well invested <laughs> in that right now. <laughs> crazy times. Crazy. Mm-hmm. crazy times. What a time to be alive. Well, that is all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we've been reading, watching, listening to just anything that has been captivating our attention this week. So Chuck, besides Bitcoin, what have you been up to? It's funny because I was going to say, I think I've been up to Bitcoin. Oh, so this GameStop thing came out this week and I was kind of transitioning between books. I, I finished up that Great Courses series I've been talking about. I, I finished up a, a book called The Next Great Depression, I think like that, something like that. It was Jim Rickards. And I was transitioning between them and then this whole GameStop thing happened. I'm usually not a person who follows the news blow by blow, um, but this one captivated me in a way where I've I've kind of delved into it and it's very fascinating. I, I, I think it's too early to say the impact of it. And I also feel like some of the hot takes are are almost certainly wrong. I mean, I don't think this was a, a Reddit-only rebellion. I, I think maybe the the tremor started on Reddit, but certainly you know other big players have jumped in now. I'm enough of a fan of a guy named Ryan Halliday who wrote, Trust Me, I'm Lying to You or something like that. I can't remember what the book was, but you know, to, to understand how these kind of uh, subterfuge things happen. So I'm, I'm a little cynical of the, you know, Robin Hood narrative on this, but it, it's a fascinating thing nonetheless, because what's very clear is that our markets are gamified and, you know, the insiders have gamified them for a long time and, and play them literally like games. I've been in uh, trading floors. I've been in high frequency trading shops. I, I've been in these places and the people doing this stuff are literally sitting at a computer. They recruit people who are good at playing video games because they literally sit at a computer, pressing buttons, playing video games uh, because they've gamified the trading floor. And it's not about evaluating companies. It's evaluating trends and, and all this stuff to the second. And the best ones are like really good game players. It's not surprising to me that you would start to see this make-believe going retail and uh, passing over into Reddit and, and stuff. And so, 
I've found the whole thing rather fascinating to live through. And I'm, I'm anxious to see a month from now, two months from now, six months from now, what the uh, retrospective is on it. Yeah, definitely. It's very, very fascinating. And I got kind of sucked into it this week too. So some, somewhat for the entertainment value of it, it was a lot of good, a lot of good memes came out of it, but it, it is fascinating to see what has happened. And, and I'll be looking forward to kind of looking back and fully understanding what the heck is going on. Yeah. So yeah, we're living in crazy times. We are. Well, and I, I think, you know, when you recognize that all the big players in the financial markets are highly leveraged, like they've borrowed lots of money because borrowing lots of money is how you make lots of money off of you know, treasuries that are 1% and, and, you know, low interest rates and stuff, you, you have to leverage a lot of money to make money. Large moves, like our market does not handle volatility well. I mean, there's a reason why we've been suppressing volatility for the, for decades and why when the market starts to go down, we jump in and prop it up. And it's because when you have a lot of leverage, you're really fragile. And so the idea of like, losing control of a stock like GameStop or the cinema one that is going on too. And there's there's a handful of them where they're doing this. This is deeply, deeply stressing for people who want the markets to just be calm, you know, or, or have relatively small amounts of volatility. So yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's very fascinating. So you are going to like this. Yeah. Um, I am currently listening to the book called Skin in the Game. Uh, Hidden, yes. <laughs> yes. Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, patron saint of Strong Towns. So his thesis is that skin in the game, which he means having measurable risk when making major decisions, is necessary for fairness, commercial efficiency, and risk management, and necessary to understand the world. So I just have to say, I love this book. And I have been listening to it this week. I've gotten, I'm almost done with it. And I think I may actually go through and reread it. Or, you know, I say that in quotes, because I'm listening to it. But there's just so much everyday philosophical wisdom in the book mixed in with theological and even mathematical ideas. And I feel that you could just listen or read a paragraph and like meditate on it for a while to fully resonate with some of these ideas that he made or the arguments rather that he makes. So I'm very much enjoying this book and I, I'm sure you've read it or reread it. <laughs> Yes, I love that one. Antifragile is is probably my favorite of his, although The Black Swan was the first one I read and just changed my really took a, a worldview of mine that was trying to form and really gave it a lot of shape and, and direction and guidance. Skin in the game is what kills someone makes others stronger. And it's really fascinating because he he's right. There's there's so many things we do right now with regulation to try to make up for having skin in the game. And in a world where people actually have skin in the game, you don't need a lot of state intervention. You don't need a lot of bureaucracy. You don't need a lot of uh, systems and you, you don't wind up with things so far out of whack. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a really, really important book and I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm loving it. And personally, I, I just think that his writing style is really funny. Like I find him to be 
really very funny. I'm glad I you really feel that way. That <laughs> some people, some people hate him and loathe that. And he doesn't write in a way that is real polished. He shuns editors. Like his, his book deals are all, no one will edit my stuff. <laughs> and people who like to read highly edited, tight pop song kind of books, he is more of a jam pan kind of book. And, and it's his humor. You have to work at it. But once you do, I, I agree. I think he's hilarious. And I sit and listen to him and I laugh the whole time because he is like deadpan funny. It's, it makes me happy that you think that because that tells me that you're really getting what he's saying. Well, maybe it's because I'm like, I've always been like a really big, like George Carlin fan. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, it's like that kind of humor, like kind of a curmudgeon. Um, no offense. No. I'm using that a lot today, but there's something about that, that I just love. And I, it's funny because I, I feel like I'm a really optimistic person, but I, I do love that writing style. Yep. There's a little bit of that vibe to it, which makes it fun. Cool. Yeah. yeah awesome. I'm so yeah. happy. <laughs> well, hopefully I'll finish it this weekend and maybe, maybe I'll, I'll read another one of his, although I like to kind of switch it up before going back to it. But yeah, I find his writing very compelling and I'm enjoying it. I would so. give it. I would give it a few months at least. Yeah, let this one percolate. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me today, Chuck. I hope you have a wonderful nap this afternoon. <laughs> thank you. You've got me energized, so maybe I can make it till tonight. So, thanks, Ed. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Bye bye.